The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and let's get started with our message tonight. As we look at uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, and uh, this evening we continue our study on the subject of living as a learner, and our topic is about the importance of God's Word in the believer's life. Paul said that his main objective was one and only one, and that was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and that's what the Word of God does for a believer. It enables him to know Christ in an intimate way and to have the power of Christ to dwell in him. And that's the same power that Christ used to conquer death and all of his enemies, uh, triumphing over everything because he is the living word of God. And the word is the only way that that kind of power can be obtained. The Bible teaches that it alone has the power to sanctify a Christian. And we must be sanctified. We must be holy as God is holy. And God says, without holiness, you're never going to see the Lord. And sanctification is that purging process that makes us like Christ, that enables us uh, to live the life of Christ in a world that's very much against him. And this is the way that Spirit works. He works through the Word of God. To be filled with the Spirit, and I hope you get this because we say it over and over, to be filled with the Spirit is the same as being filled with the Word of God. Now, Paul writes these words of encouragement in this text of 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. The first verse that I'm going to read here doesn't sound like much encouragement, but it'll end up that way. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And that is the good news of the passage, that God has given us a way to get through everything that we face in this life. Now, this, this passage, in the passage, the apostle shows here that he does have the utmost confidence in Scripture to supply everything that he needed. And he's teaching us that the Word of God does that for us as well. Now, in the previous messages, we've been discussing the first point of this whole outline, and that is the necessity of the Word. And Paul began the chapter by outlining the problem. He says that we are living in the last days. And these are days that are characterized by the rejection of God's ways. And this is a, a very much self-absorbed society. And we can see in verse number 2 that this is the problem that anchors all the rest of the problems that we have in this passage of Scripture, where Paul says, "...men shall be lovers of their own selves." And that's the problem with the whole human race. It's always been just this, that men are lovers of self. And when the me-first society takes over and becomes dominant, then there is no longer any reason for people to want God. And the Christian needs the Word 
because the Word helps us to shove aside all that self-indulgence, and it helps us to learn Christ as Paul learned Him. So we learn through the Word how to change our thinking. We learn how to love God first, to love Him with all that we have. And in the process of that, we're also adding that second commandment that God has given us, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. A few days ago, there was someone who asked me, why humans have not evolved to the place where there would be no prejudices and there would be no war. Everybody can just get along with one another. Why hasn't the human race evolved to that? And the problem is the human heart. I explained to this person, it's the human heart and it won't happen because it can't happen. Man doesn't have the ability to get himself out of sin. The heart has to be changed and God is the only one that can change it. So God has to do it and that's when we begin to have the spiritual capability to begin learning Christ. So I asked this man who asked me that question to look into his own heart. And I, and I asked him, um, do you sin? Have you got any sin in your life? Or have you lived without sin? And of course he had to admit that he, that he couldn't, that he didn't. And so I said, well, then you need to stop blaming everybody else for all the problems of the world. You're just like all the rest of it. We're contributing to the problems that this world have. Now, you can, has, you can see here in this, in this chapter that there is a list of self-absorbing sins. There's sin, the, the sin of lack of natural affection. We talked about it last week. And there's the sin of lying here, uh, a sin of no self-control, a hatred of holiness, and on and on and on. And those are symptoms of the disease of self-love. And when people become obsessed with self, they become antagonistic towards God and his people. Now, they're already hostile. We live in a world that's already hostile. But as the world becomes more interested in itself and people become that more self-absorbed person, that's when they really lash out at those who are the people of God. And so they become militant against anything that smacks of judgment of their lifestyle. Jesus said, people love darkness. And it's not enough for people to do evil. They want to force evil on everyone. And that's because the light that we try to live exposes their darkness. And so what they want to do is throw that blanket of darkness over all of the light. And that's why we're not just dealing with a homosexual agenda. We're dealing with a militant homosexual agenda. See, we're not dealing with a sexual revolution in principle. What we're dealing with is a sexual revolution that demands to be accepted or forced into submission to it. So persecution and affliction result from the activities of the first seven verses that are in this chapter. So Paul said to Timothy, the only resource that you have is to be strengthened by the Word of God. The Word is the path to holiness. Walking in the Word is the only way that you can live because that's the only thing that's going to give you the strength to stand up and serve God no matter what the wicked world becomes or how wicked it becomes. So Christians and churches, though, have abandoned the Word. And as they do, they fall like dominoes to Satan's devices. A few weeks ago, I received one of MacArthur's support letters and... Uh, he made some good comments in it. Uh, he, he said some things that I strongly agree with and saying things that you've heard me say before. And the gist of that letter was that for far too long, churches have concerned themselves with politics. Now, oddly, that became a, a subject this morning as we talked a little bit about that in the forum class. 
But uh, MacArthur was talking about how churches are out pushing petitions and lobbying Congress to change things. And they try to get government to, to hold on to godliness. As if the, the government has the ability to cause people to live godly lives. And they want the government to make godliness happen in America. But you'll notice in this chapter that Paul doesn't say, go and lobby the Roman Senate. Go get some signs and go and, and, and march to Rome and picket and get some legislation passed. Now what Paul told Timothy to do, living in these perilous times, these, these times when things are getting worse and worse, is to go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures and find what you need because the power to change the world or change America is not in the Democratic Party. And we've known that for a long, long time. And it's not in the Republican Party. We're learning that very quickly. Finally, conservative Christians have come to the conclusion that putting their confidence in a party is going to amount to nothing. So there is no confidence to be placed in the Tea Party and the Libertarians or anyone else. The only thing that gives us hope and can change for change is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have to go. Paul said, go there. Go to the Word and preach the Word. So we've talked about the necessity of the Word for Christians. And now we're ready to explore a little bit more about what the Word can do to us. Now, let me just mention the first three points of discussion that we've already been through, and then I want to continue with a, with a fourth one tonight. Why is the Word of God necessary? That first one is salvation. God's Word is necessary for our salvation. It makes us wise unto salvation. The Word explains who we are. It shows the problem in us that must be solved. And then it reveals Christ and His work of redemption, which affects the solution by salvation from sin. Then secondly, we need the word for condemnation. The word condemns. It's the law of God that condemns by declaring that we are sinners estranged from God. And we have to have that, that contrast to know that we really do need the Lord, that we are sinners, that we are condemned, that we're on our way to hell, and that we are going to be judged by the word of God, which is God's perfect standard of righteousness. Thirdly, we need the word for sanctification. And I mentioned that a moment ago. Sanctification is our holiness. The Word teaches us how we are to live. And so knowing Christ is to know the example of how we live and the example that we should follow. Christ-likeness is the objective of the sanctifying power of the Word. Paul wrote that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what the Holy Spirit does through the Word to accomplish that is to reprove us of sin, to correct the way that we live, and it teaches righteousness, as it says there in verse number 16. So ultimately then, it furnishes us with the doctrine that we need, with the instruction for good works that we have been ordained to walk in. And so always Paul is going to tell us, go to the Word. He said, Timothy, go to the Word. Salvation, condemnation, and sanctification are going to be found in the Word. But let's go just a step further here to a fourth one. The Word is also necessary for preservation. And that'll help you to understand why that I gave you a little speech there a minute ago about Christians becoming political activists and expecting the government to change things. So what is the real problem in our country? Well, I think we're all aware of the history, how we got here. In 1620, there was a group of Bible-believing Christians that left Holland, and they sailed to Plymouth, England, where they joined another group of of people that were like-minded and of like faith, and they decided they would sail to America where they could enjoy religious freedom. And they wanted religious freedom not for all people, but 
for them. Uh, they were wrong about that, but they did want the religious freedom to worship as they pleased. And they came here to worship God, and they wanted what Paul said that we should pray for in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That is to live peaceably, and, and to not to be troubled by the government or anyone else that would stop us from serving God. Not to be troubled by those who make up the list that we've just read about or have read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so this group of what we call pilgrims now sailed to America and they began the Massachusetts Bay Colony at Plymouth in the year 1620. And maybe you didn't know this uh, if you hadn't heard the messages that I preached uh, some months ago on, uh, on, the church, on church history. Maybe you didn't know this, but those pilgrims that came to America believed exactly the same thing that we believe about the doctrine of salvation. And they believed in the sovereignty of God, just as we teach it, and they believed in the doctrines of grace, which are the same as what we still preach right here at Berean. Now let me say something about this, that you can't believe the doctrines that we teach without learning to be totally dependent upon God. And the pilgrims knew that when they came to America, that they couldn't survive without God's providence. And so the Puritans came to America. These pilgrims were very God-dependent people. Their Bible was the Geneva Bible. That was the source of their strength. That's what kept them going. But then there came a downgrade in our country, and it started with the immigration of many, many people that didn't share those same beliefs. Now, you can deal with the repercussions of the theology later if you want to and do it in your own way. But I'm just telling you now that the Word of God became less, much less prioritized in the lives of the people. Less prioritized as a guide for people's lives. So if you ask me, why do we no longer have godly people in America? Why is there a godless agenda that's taking over? It's because there is little to no interest in God's Word. And if you complain about it and you believe that this country is going down the tubes because of it, then you need to take a minute to evaluate your own relationship with God's Word. Do you complain that nobody listens to the Bible anymore? That nobody does what the Bible says anymore? Do you complain about that and yet you don't read the Bible yourself? How could this country have been preserved? Well, listen to what Hosea says in the Old Testament. He says, my people, he's quoting, of course, or speaking for God, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Oh, God is telling Hosea there, telling the people here, that because you have forgotten me, the future generations are going to be forgotten by me. Do you understand this? God's not going to sustain them. There's no providence of God that's going to be up on them if they keep walking away from God. Now, we do need to understand that those words were spoken to Israel as God's covenant people, and we have to be very careful about taking those words out of their context and applying them to us. And that's what many people do when they uh, read Second Chronicles 7.14, and they, that becomes the, the, the basis for a lot of patriotic sermons. But regardless of that, there is a principle that is established here that can be applied. America is not God's chosen nation, but there are true churches in America that contain God's chosen people. So how do we expect to reserve our place as an influence in this country 
And how are people going to be blessed by our presence if the church itself departs from righteousness? How we expect to be preserved if we do? Well, Hosea said, God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And that's why America is going down the tubes. There are people in churches, many I think probably in this church, that may not say it out loud, but in their heart and in their actions, what they say is, we don't really need to know that. We don't really need to know all about these things. And they just drift around and people in churches drift around until nobody knows anything. And when that happens, the way of righteousness is lost. Nobody knows the word and so Christians have no influence. Oh, but many of them are good at signing petitions. They're good at pinning their hopes on some candidate, this one or that one. And that's not going to fix things because the Bible says that's not what's wrong with you. You're destroyed for lack of knowledge, not for lack of activism. Well, all of that's on the governmental level. Paul's method in dealing with the problems of the first part of chapter 3 was not to see what the government could do about it. His advice to Timothy was, you want to solve this problem? Continue in the Word. If you want to be preserved, continue in the Word. And that's what I have to say to you. That's what I have to say to God's church. If you want to be preserved in this place, continue in the Word. Be a light to the world and lead people to Christ. But I want to remind you again of what Paul has to say here about uh, religious adversaries. Uh, the church doesn't really need to concern itself as much about what the government does as we do about what the false church does. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul warned the Ephesian elders about false teachers and he said they're going to infiltrate the church and he called them grievous wolves. That was a very easy, recognizable, easily recognizable metaphor for these people because the Word of God often refers to God's people as being sheep. We're the sheep of his pasture. So Paul said these false teachers are wolves. Peter said they're brute beasts. Jude called them filthy dreamers, twice dead trees, raging ways of the sea, and wandering stars. You know, I, I read Jude, and whenever I read Jude, I think about Jorge. Uh, Jorge has no use for JWs and Mormons and all that deceiving mess. Just talk to him for a few minutes. This is what the Word of God does. He preserves against heresy. So Paul pointed Timothy to the Word. And, and you, we can just go on describing what's wrong with modern Christianity. We can go on and go on and go on, but it all comes down to this. People just do not know the Word. And I'll tell you another sad thing about this is that there are many of our Christian colleges that really aren't helping the problem because what they can do is they can produce a lot of perky zeal about things, but they leave the real strength of Christianity between the pages of the book. They're very weak doctrinally. And the only thing that's really going to preserve the church in the world is the doctrines of Jesus Christ. If you don't know them, if you're not studying those, and if you're always up on the surface somewhere all the time, don't expect the church ultimately will be preserved. So there's such shallowness in the world among Christians and preachers aren't helping it because the preaching of the Word of God, what pretends to be the Word of God, is filled with shallowness. Or, I don't know if you can fill something with shallowness, but if you could, that's, that's what you've got. And people uh, in our Baptist churches today absolutely do not know what our Baptist forefathers taught. And then they finally get into a church somewhere where somebody's teaching what we believe the Bible teaches and what Baptists have taught since the beginning... 
And they get into churches like that, and all of a sudden they think the King James Bible has been assaulted because they've never actually heard these doctrines before. This is the necessity of knowing the Word. From the inception of life, at the time that you are saved, the new birth, until you die, you need the power of the grace of God in your life that comes through God's Word. That's what preserves us, the ministry of the Word. Well, that brings me to the next area of discussion. Number two is the neglect of the Word. And I've just pointed out the problem that's produced by neglect. If the Word is necessary, as I have described it here, then without the Word, there would be no salvation. There would be no understanding of condemnation. There would be no sanctification and no preservation. Oh, you can easily figure that part out. It's just the opposite of point number one. But this part is not really about laying out the opposites and going through it again. Rather, what I want to talk about now, talk about now is excuses for neglecting the Word. I mean, it's not as if you're going to sit there and stare at me and you say, well, all of that's right. Everything that you said is right. So what I'm going to do right now, or what I'm going to do as soon as I leave here, I'm going to change things. I'm going to start to change things. And I already know, and it's a good crowd here tonight, but I already know there are some people who won't do that. And that Satan is already working hard. And although you would never say that what I've said is untrue, you're already formulating excuses for why you can't do what I said. So let's just run over. This is what this part is about. We're going to run over some common excuses of why people neglect the Word. The first one is, the Word is the preacher's problem. I don't need to study the Word because we've got a preacher to do that. That's what we pay him for. So why should I spend my time doing what he's supposed to do? We pay him for that. And I thank you for that. Some of you believe that it's good to support the pastor. The labor is worthy of his reward, uh, as it says in the Scripture. Some of you think it's a good thing to do. Others don't think that's a good thing to do. And they just don't like paying the preacher or paying him a sufficient wage, whatever it is. And that's a common thing that's happened down through history. But people who think like that need to think about their excuse, the rationality of it. Because by that reasoning, they would have to do what I'm doing if that's what they think this is all about. They, they would have to do what I do. You wouldn't have me to do it. So what I want you to do, if you would, is turn to Acts chapter 18. And I want to show you why studying the Word is not just a preacher problem. Studying the Word is something for everybody that's a part of the congregation. And here we see a great example of how there were people in the church that had studied the Word and knew the Word for themselves and how they were help, able to help someone else. Now, Acts chapter 18 and verse number 24. Acts 18, 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord... And being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the word of God more perfectly. Now, Apollos is a very interesting Bible character. If you ever get a chance to 
listened to a sermon that was preached by Al Mohler at the uh, Shepherds Conference a few years ago. It, it'd be a good thing to listen to his sermon about Apollos because he did a very good job of explaining the peculiarities of this man that we have in the scriptures. But among the important things that we know about him is that he was a preacher that really had great intentions. He knew how to deliver a sermon. He knew how to keep people interested in what he had to say. So he was a good man with good intentions. Now, although I have doctrinal differences with some of our Baptist brethren, most of them or many of them, I don't doubt their ability. And I don't doubt their good intentions. Apollos was a great preacher from the stylistic side. He was somebody you would like to listen to. He was a great orator. It's the Word of God says he's a very eloquent man. But the problem was, he wasn't quite right or quite straight on the doctrinal facts. And that's because he didn't have the whole story. So people that listened to him, and he didn't have his doctrine quite right, what would happen to them? Now here is a man that the problem is, at this point, he hadn't yet met Paul. I think that's a problem with a lot of Baptist preachers. They haven't yet met Paul. They need to read a little bit more of Paul. But anyway, uh, what happened to anyone that listened to Apollos and liked him and believed what he had to say, but didn't know the scriptures themselves? Well, what would happen when all is said and done, their doctrine would not be quite right either, would it? They would have his quirks. They would have his little things that were off about doctrine. And I'm sure that may sound familiar to you. But here's the good part of this. There are two disciples that were there at the synagogue, and they were listening to Apollos preach, and they had teamed up with Paul to work at Corinth, and they had their understanding enlightened by Paul's ministry. And so when they heard Apollos preach, they recognized that there are some deficiencies here. There's some things that are wrong. So they pulled Apollos aside, and they said, Man, you need to get a few things straight. And so they began to teach him. They taught him the truth. Now, the Bible says here that he only knew the baptism of John. Now, he was preaching Christ, but he only knew the baptism of John. And what that tells us is he didn't yet understand all about the significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he had to be corrected on that. He had to be taught about that. He was incomplete in his understanding. And here you have some church members, the ones that knew the Scriptures, that understood the truth, and they were able to help Apollos with those deficiencies. Well, this is a problem that goes on way too much. Studying the Word is the preacher's problem. And so the preacher ends up with his little groupies that hang on to every word that he has to say as if he is God, and they have no clue that they are spiritual lemmings that he's leading off a doctrinal cliff. Now, this is how the Roman Catholic Church got a foothold. They told the people, the Bible's not for you. The Bible is for the priest. Let us study it. Let us tell you what the Bible says. And now we have this huge monstrosity called Roman Catholicism with billions and billions of, well, a billion followers, I should say, a billion followers that have no clue about the truth. They just follow and they believe the lies because the Word of God, they say, is a priest problem. That's happening a lot in our Baptist churches. Do you know that? The Word of God is a preacher problem. So we'll just listen to what he says and we'll drink in, we'll soak it all up and his word is truth. Instead of the Bible is truth. We need to go to the Word of God. Now you get the point here, you can't leave all this to me. What I expect and what God expects is for you to be Bereans. 
that you are supposed to know the word so you can check me out. Now, you should be listening to me, of course, but don't take everything that I say at face value. Check me out, and that's exactly what I want you to do. And if you have a problem with something, or something wrong with what I teach, then come to the office and let's talk about it. Let's sit down and let's discuss it. But if you have a disagreement, be ready for an argument, because I don't give up easily. I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. So uh, I want you to think about the Word for yourself, but be prepared to discuss and find out what the Word of God says. So what I'm trying to tell you is, I don't want you to be Smithites. I want you to be Bereans. That's what God expects. So the next thing, let's look at this. The next thing, the first one, the Word's a preacher problem, so that's why we neglect it. The second one is confusing. It has confusing concepts. So the second excuse is the Bible is too confusing. I can't understand it. And that's probably the most frequent excuse. I don't get anything out of the Bible because I can't understand it. Now we're going to talk about methods of Bible study a little bit later. And there are, there are some ways that will help you get started into Bible study. But the reason this excuse is so often used is because people... One of the reasons is, I should say, is because people begin to study in the wrong way or they start in the wrong place. They read things that, you know, all the Bible's good for you, but there are parts that you need to start out with that are more attuned to the level that you're on, that you can understand in a better way. So you start reading in the right place, studying the right way. But my first question about this, when someone would say, well, I, I don't understand the Bible, uh, then the first thing I might ask is, what is your reading level? And that could be a problem. Maybe it's a misunderstanding because of the reading level. So I'll just ask you, can you understand four-letter words? I'm talking about good four-letter words, not the bad ones. <laughs> By the way, this reminds me of something. Yesterday, uh, I was listening to Jorge as he came in the door just, uh, it was this morning, and he, he said something in Spanish, and somebody said, oh, I know what that means. Well, I can't remember what that conversation was about, but he just said some word in Spanish. I had no idea what it meant. So I was driving home yesterday. I'd taken my walk up, a, or day before, I was taking my walk up Taylor Mountain. And I was coming home, and I was tired, and I turned the corner there to go towards my house, and I didn't see somebody that was coming. I made a right turn on red, and I didn't see way down the road that somebody was coming. I kind of pulled out, maybe not at the right time, and all I heard was one Spanish word, and I have no idea what they said, but I can guess what they said. <laughs> but you look at the Word of God, and... The reading level of the King James Version, I mean, it's, it's the primary usage of words here in the English are four-letter words. I mean, that's the average length is what I'm trying to say. The average length of a word in the King James Bible is four letters. You may not realize that, but it is four letters. And the reading level of the King James is eighth grade. Now, the second question that I would ask, which probably should have been the first question, is, are you a Christian? Are you actually born again? And what did Jesus promise, or who did Jesus promise, would be the helper to understand his word for everybody who believes? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was promised. And what is one of the main activities that the Holy Spirit has in the life of a believer? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, 
that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So you know how I started to understand the Bible? I began with a teacher. I had Sunday school teachers, of course. But what I'm really talking about is I had a teacher on the inside. I had the Holy Spirit to be my teacher. And do you know that the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian, he lives in you too. He's not going to zap you with knowledge. He doesn't do that. Understanding the Bible is a lengthy process and it requires time, it requires energy and determination. You're not going to learn the Bible by reading it for just a few minutes or not reading at all, of course. You're not going to learn the Bible that way. So I think a good place to start is not only with just the personal Bible reading, but come to church, listen to the sermons, make yourself available to the teaching of the Word of God, listen, take notes, and then look at the Scriptures, take them home with you, and then look over the Scriptures that have been brought up in the message, and then formulate in your mind how that those Scriptures have been put together to make the points of the sermon, how things have been organized, and how the Word of God works together. And if you do that, you'll start to understand a little bit better. I think it's a very good thing to take notes in church and and to get these things down and to look at those later. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is I don't have any special intellect that you don't have to understand the Word of God. I've been at it longer. I've got the Holy Spirit to guide me at, at it longer than some of you, I suppose. And I have a determination to keep on doing it. And that's what it takes to learn the Word of God. I had a person that regularly came to me through the years and came to me very frustrated because he would say to me I want to know the word of God the way that you know the word of God now folks trust me on this I don't know as much as you think that I know I don't but he would say that to me I want to know the word of God the way that you know the word of God then about a year he would come back to me again and he'd be frustrated he'd say I want to know the word of God the way that you know the word of God so I just finally asked him do you read the Word of God? What do you think his answer was? Okay, that's a problem, isn't it? You see, to say, to say that I can't, I, I, I neglect the Word of God because it's confusing to me, because I don't understand it, that is not going to work. And the reason that it doesn't work, it can't be an excuse, because it's the same as saying that the Holy Spirit is a failed teacher. That the Holy Spirit just can't do anything with me. He can't teach me anything. Well, every Christian without exception is going to get something from God's Word. The Holy Spirit is there to be the teacher. And how much you get depends on how much time, how much energy, how much prayer, and how much determination go into it. So we got that? All right, you can't use that as an excuse. But what's the third one? Third excuse. Busy as a bee. I'm just too busy. Can't do it because they've got too much to do. And to that, I would say, you are an Oscar Mayer Christian. That means you are full of baloney. That's what that means. I mean, if you live, if you live in the United States of America, and you're anything but comatose, you, you don't have time for a lot of things. You understand this, that people that study the Bible are busy too, There are a lot of things that we have to do, but we just leave off less important things. So the question becomes, what do you have time for? What do you spend your time doing? And then, what should you do? 
Well, here's what Jesus said, Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And listen to that last part. I think sometimes we forget that last part. All these things shall be added unto you. Now, if you've read the Bible, you actually know this. You're going to do what your priorities dictate. We don't need more time. We need wiser use of time. I think back to the way that Paul viewed life. And I, and I have to take you back to his thought in Philippians that I alluded to at the first part of the message. It was his way of characterizing um, those things that people think are more important than the Word of God. How did, how did he look at that? Well, this is what he says in Philippians 3, verse 7, starting there. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And listen to this phrase, and do count them but dung. Do you realize what he's saying? Everything that you have to do in your life, well, there's a four-letter word right there. And he says, I count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. This is exactly the way that you have to order your life as a Christian. You don't start with all the things that you have to do and then begin to figure out, how am I going to fit God into what I have to do? That's the usual approach. But that wasn't Paul's approach. He was saved. And you remember that he started with this question. He's on the road to Damascus. God saved him. And the first thing that Paul did was ask a question. Lord, what will you have me to do? And right there, he acknowledged the one who has had the control of his life. He was saved. His life belonged to the Lord. It's no longer his. Now it belongs to Christ. This is why he writes in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. The life which I now live by, uh, live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why he wrote that. Because God had his life. He was his Lord. So his priorities were completely switched. His life belonged to Christ. Christ became his priority. So it wasn't, Lord, now that you saved me, let me see how I can fit you into my schedule. No, Paul's way is the way that you approach Christianity and its demands. You start with what God asked you to do, or should I say told you to do, and then you fit what you have to do into his schedule, his schedule. Now you say, well, that that sounds like a difficult thing to do, but it's really not. Because when you trust the Lord, he knows exactly what he's doing. So here's what you'll find out. That God doesn't ask you, don't don't get, get the wrong idea. God doesn't ask you to spend every waking minute walking up and down the street knocking on doors. And telling people how to be saved. God doesn't expect you to do that. God doesn't say, now don't you ever let the word of God get out of your sight. You put it in a plastic bag and you take a shower with it. Because you're supposed to have it with you all the time. No, that's, that's not how God works. Should you talk about Jesus? Oh, yes, you should talk about Jesus. Should you read the Scriptures? Yes, you should. And you'll find out that you will have time in His schedule that He will let you do the things that are necessary for you to get done. You understand what I'm saying? You put Him first, you've got His schedule, and then He allows you to put all the things that are necessary for you to get done into His schedule. 
Now this is, this is very similar, a very similar principle to the tithe. You think about this. How can anybody in this economy afford to give 10% of their income to the Lord? How do you afford to do that? But you find out, if you do it, that God can take the nine-tenths that you have left over and he can do wonders with it, things that you never thought that he would be able to do. And did you know that time is the same way? Can you believe that God can stretch time? He did it for Joshua, and he did it for Hezekiah. So the question is, who has priority? You or God? So let me just tell you as I finish up here tonight, we're going to get done early. Here's part of the dilemma that I faced. Um, I study a lot, uh, not as much as I should, but I studied a lot. And I wanted more time to be able to read the Bible just for me. And what I, what I mean is not necessarily studying all the time for sermons for you, but just to have time to read the Bible for me. But I've got a busy schedule. I've got a lot of things that I have to do. So how am I possibly going to do this? Well, so what I decided to do was to get up an hour earlier. I don't like getting out of bed early, early, earlier than any, getting up early than anybody else's. I mean, I don't like to do that. But I wanted to do that to get the time that I needed. And it was a blessing. It's always a blessing to get up and read. So what God did was gave me a way to make that work. I don't know if it'll work for you, but it worked for me. I think when you begin to prioritize God's work, then he shows you the way these things can be done. So this is what I wanted to get across to you tonight. God's word is necessary for us. Paul pointed Timothy back to the word. The word has the answer for anything that you face. It's necessary for you to live for Christ. In fact, if you ignore the God of, word of God, you cannot say that you are a real Christian. Christians can't work that way because God says it won't work that way. So he calls for the word to be a priority and there aren't any excuses that you have that God accepts because he's the one that controls everything. So how can he accept your excuses? He already knows everything from the beginning. So what he's done, he's given you the Holy Spirit and he's given you the word and the word is always for your benefit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the word that we've studied tonight. And Lord, we thank you that there's such power in the word of God. How it changes our life, how it turns situations around, how it gives us a different outlook on life. Uh, Lord, if we just dedicate ourselves, spending time in your word, we find that so many of our problems just seem to melt away. And if the problems don't leave, you give us the ability to handle every single one of them. So thank you, Lord. For the word, and I pray that Christians of Berean Baptist spend time in the Word and love the Word, and it'll show up in the efforts that we give here in our church. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Bless us tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.